Great, thank you. Well, um, tonight, what I want to do is to look at a biblical case study of an evangelistic church and see what we can learn from their example. And the church that I'm thinking of is the church at Antioch. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 11. And we're going to read from verse 19 uh, down to verse 19. Sorry, my screen's playing around down to uh, verse 26. So Acts 11, 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So let's think about this this evangelistic church and uh, we're going to see what we can we can learn from their example. They are a great example of how a, a healthy growing church is an evangelistic church. And uh, it's tremendous to see this church at work in, in their community. And it was a. Uh, a growing church. So look at verse 21. It says the Lord, Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And then verse 24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And I want to say, first of all, it was a growing church because it was an evangelistic church. Evangelism was a priority for this church. It was the heartbeat of the church at Antioch. So again, Look at verse 19. We read there, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch. And then we get this phrase, spreading the word. So these folk that had, had, had left Jerusalem and ended up in, in the city of Antioch were now sharing the gospel, spreading the word. And then again in verse 20, we read of how some men came from Cyprus and Cyrene. And they ended up at Antioch, too, and they began to speak to Greeks, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And then we read verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. You know, there's a lot of talk today about church growth. But it seems to me often what that comes down to is my church attracting people who are already Christians from other churches. And, uh, you know, often it's it's one church growing at the expense of another. We're not really growing the kingdom of God at all. What we're doing is just relocating it. Antioch wasn't like that. It was a church that grew by conversions. Uh, that was real. And I believe that is real church growth. 
There's an awful lot of talk today, again, about church planting as well. Now, I'm in favour of church planting. I'm, I'm a church planter myself. But it seems to me, again, that perhaps one of the, the problems we've got is that there's a disconnect between church planting and mission. So when I look at many of the churches that are being planted, you ask yourself, why is it that they're all being planted in areas where there are already lots of Christians, perhaps in middle class areas, often near to universities? In my own city, there are several relatively new churches and they're all in one area clustered around the, um, the, the university. In fact, they're on the same bit of road almost and um, they're right on top of each other. And yet the tragedy is there are huge areas in my city that have no church at all. Massive, uh, many of them council estates with no evangelical witness. And you've got to ask yourself the question, haven't you? What is motivating that kind of church planting? Is it really about winning the lost? Is it really about mission? Well, this church in Antioch was about mission and God blessed them. And the church grew. And I believe it grew because they were being obedient to God's command to evangelize. Twice we read the Lord's hand was with them as they witnessed. I've been to uh, a number of prayer meetings for revival. And again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm in favor of those as well. We need revival. We should be praying for revival. But I've got to ask the question. Do we honestly believe that God is going to send us revival if we're not obeying his command to evangelize? In fact, some people have sort of given the impression that we don't really need evangelism because we're just going to wait for revival to come, um, which I think is a great mistake. Um, no, God blessed this church and it grew because evangelism was right at the top of the list of their priorities. God's hand was with them. C.G. Studd, famous missionary, of course, founded uh, WEC. He once said this, famously said, some choose to live within sound of chapel bell. I'd rather run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Well, it's a challenging quote, isn't it? But actually, I think every church is a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Um, that's what we should be. We should be mission centers, reaching the lost around us. I don't know if you've heard this one. Church is there for Christians and not for non-Christians. You ever heard that? Uh, some people say it, don't they? It, 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 the church is really all about teaching believers. It's for believers to gather, etc., etc. And again, I think it's one of the great falsehoods that, that people have come to believe. It is a false dichotomy, isn't it, to suggest that there's a conflict between evangelism and, and teaching believers. After all, the church is there to make disciples and discipleship starts when people get saved. So our churches should be evangelistic. Paul certainly saw no conflict, no, no, you know, Difficulty in marrying evangelism and the teaching of believers. So in Acts chapter 20 and verse 18, 
he describes his three years in Ephesus like this. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared both to Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. You see there, Paul doesn't see any difficulty in being a, a, a Bible teacher for believers, teaching these believers from house to house, he says, and then in the gathered church and also preaching the gospel, preaching that men should turn in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Paul did both. There was no conflict in Paul's mind between between the two. So this was an evangelistic church. But I just want us to draw out one or two slightly more detailed things about this evangelistic church. So, first of all, I want you to notice that it was the whole church that was involved in evangelism. So verse 19, we read, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Who were these people? Well, they weren't the apostles. What they were, were, were ordinary Christians. Christians who'd, who'd fled from Jerusalem, had ended up in different parts of the world and here in Antioch. And immediately as they arrived in Antioch, what do they do, these, these Christians? They begin to evangelize they begin to share the word spread the word and again when these men arrived from cyprus and cyrene what did they do they began telling the greeks the good news about the lord jesus christ these were ordinary members of the church they weren't uh full-time evangelists paid evangelists they were just the average church member gossiping the gospel with the people that they met and it was definitely intentional evangelism, wasn't it? Uh, I've heard it said again that that really the ordinary Christian should just be reactive. In other words, should just share the gospel when somebody asks them, um, when someone initiates the conversation rather than proactive. But it seems to me that these believers were being proactive. They were taking the initiative. They were seeking to spread the word and tell others about Jesus. And so this is ordinary believers involved in one to one proactive evangelism. And I believe that is why the church was so effective and why it grew so quickly and was so powerful in its outreach. It is the responsibility, you know, of every single believer to share the gospel with lost people and actually I think we are in danger of losing that to a certain extent in some of our churches I think maybe we've got into the habit of paying people to do ministry and I'm not against that either but we've done that to kind of well it lets us off the hook it's not our job anymore you know that that's the church evangelist job or that's the youth workers job no it's something that we all need to be involved in sadly so often in churches what i see is that you get a a committed 
few, the enthusiasts who are doing the evangelism in the church. Maybe they're running the, the Christianity Explored group or or perhaps they're doing some door to door work or perhaps they're out on the streets uh, doing open air or tract work. And it's just that tiny group that do it and everybody else kind of, well, leaves them to it kind of thing. You know, that's their thing. And I think that's a great mistake. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I believe we need specialists. We do need full time evangelists, gifted evangelists. But they are not the only ones that should be doing the work. In fact, as we're going to see, one of the primary responsibilities of the gifted evangelist is to be teaching and training the rest of the church in evangelism. That's what you find in Ephesians 4. So this was the whole church involved in evangelism. How do we get our churches to be like that. How do we involve or motivate all of our members? I think there's a number of things we can do. So I think we need to be teaching our church members how to evangelize. Don't just assume that they know. We need to be running regular teaching and training sessions on evangelism. Um, there are a number that you can get and DVDs, etc., uh, however we do it, we, we need to be doing that regularly. Every believer, I think, in our churches should know how to share the gospel in five minutes. Um, perhaps one or two key scripture texts that they're able to turn to and take a non-Christian through and explain what the gospel is. And I think every single member of our church should know how to share their testimony in three minutes. So that they're ready when the opportunity comes to take those opportunities. Are, are we training uh, our regular members in that way? I think something else that we can be doing is, is mentoring one another in this. Um, so, you know, it, it, those that are more experienced, that have done it before, take a, a younger believer or a less experienced person under their wing and train them. Um, can I say to you, if you're going to do evangelism, don't do it on your own. Take someone with you. Take a younger Christian with you. I know from my own experience, that is where I learn. Um, I think you learn more on the job than you do in the classroom. And uh, that is where I learn by watching others, you know, listening in on, on their conversation with unconverted people, uh, listening in on how they answer difficult questions um, and uh, that's a great, great training ground. And we need to be doing that. And then another idea is is sharing in the prayer meeting those that were seeking to win for Christ. Perhaps those we've had a good conversation with that week at work or, or those we're concerned about. Um, share it in the prayer meeting. Um, I, I know one church got a great idea. They have a big, long um, roll of, of wallpaper actually is the back of wallpaper and they've just written the names of all their non-christian friends down on it and every prayer meeting they roll this wallpaper out across the the floor and it's it's now a long long list of course they've been added to it every week and uh, and then they pray for those non-christians and i think all of this is, is building, it's a bit what Jonathan was talking about earlier on when he was recommending that book. It's building a culture 
of mission into our churches, a mindset, an evangelistic mindset into the members of our churches. So it was evangelism by by the whole church. Then secondly, I want to say this church in Antioch is a great model to us to us of evangelism that reaches the whole community. So again, we're back to verse 19, where we read about these Christians that came from Jerusalem. And in verse 19, we read that they were spreading the word only amongst Jews. Did you notice that? And then in verse 20, we read of how these other men came from Cyprus and Cyrene. And they began to speak to Greeks also, that is Gentiles. So to begin with, they were only witnessing to Jews. That was one of the big issues in the early church, of course, wasn't it? They'd, they'd got a theological problem. They hadn't understood that the gospel was for for Gentiles as well as Jews. They were very reluctant to, to reach Gentiles. And so this other group that came from, from a, a more mixed Gentile background, they were they were saying, look, hey, we've got to reach the, the Gentiles as well. And they began to witness to them. You know, I think we do have an issue in our churches of only reaching certain types of people. Now, for us, I'm sure it's probably not a Jew Gentile issue, is it? But I do think that one of the weaknesses often in our evangelism is that we we reach just certain types of people. Often it's people who are like us, of course, and, and we find them the easiest people to speak to. I understand that. But. Actually, we need challenging, just like the church in Antioch needed challenging, to reach everyone in the community. I think there are all kinds of of barriers to evangelism that need to be broken down. So there is the, the religious barrier. I wonder how good we are at reaching people from other religions, um, other ethnic backgrounds. That's the social barrier as well. You know, the... Many of our churches are just reaching one demographic, perhaps the middle classes or perhaps the, you know, the young professionals. We're not reaching the whole of the community as we should be. And I think it's very, very challenging. You know, are we just reaching middle class people? What what about working class people? What about unemployed people? What about elderly people? Do we reach them? It's a massive mission field. I think in the UK, the statistic is something like 30 percent of the population is is over 60. That is a huge mission field. How effective are we in reaching them? Have we thought about how we do that? So there's a lot of challenges. Are we reaching the whole community? And I think we need to learn a principle from the Apostle Paul on this. So if you if you look in your Bible in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19. We read there of, of one of the principles that that govern Paul's evangelism. He says there in verse 19 of, of 1 Corinthians 9, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Though I'm free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law to the weak. Verse 22 to the weak. I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people 
so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So notice what Paul says there. He says, I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Very interesting, you know, that phrase, becoming all things to all people, is often used in a in a negative sense, isn't it? I'm sure you've heard it said, you know, they're just... They're all things to all men, you know, and it's meant as a criticism. But here it's a positive thing that Paul is, is, is challenging us to. It's a spiritual attitude. Paul is saying, look, I'm prepared, prepared to put aside my personal preferences, my own background, my own culture, the things that I'm familiar with. I'm willing to, to put aside those things and I'm willing to adapt to other people's culture and other people's preferences in order to be more effective in winning them. So I'm going to put myself out, says Paul. It's what Hudson Taylor did, wasn't it, when he went to China. Uh, he scandalized the whole missionary community in China because he dressed in Chinese dress. He, he shaved the front of his head and grew a ponytail at the back. And, and they all thought, wow, how unspiritual is this? You know, but but he did it because he wanted to reach Chinese people. And he knew if he was going to do that effectively, then he had to change. And that meant very practically changing the way he cut his hair and he dressed. I wonder in what ways do we need to adapt and change in order to reach the people in our communities? Or do we expect them to adapt and change when they come to us? You know, Um, and I think this can show itself in lots of ways. I think very often our preaching and our teaching can be very, very academic. And that that can become a barrier to people who haven't come from a, you know, a, a graduate background. Some of our Bible studies, I think, are more like English comprehension lessons uh, and, and, you know, some people who are not from that kind of background find it really, really difficult. Some of our sermons can be almost like university le- lectures, which is OK for graduates, but not for people who've, who've, you know, have no experience of that, find it hard to concentrate and, and engage. I think it's a big, big challenge to us. Now, obviously, we're not talking about compromising the message. We're not talking about changing the message. In fact, Paul says, I do this for the sake of the gospel. So it's not changing the message, but it's sometimes changing the method, the context. When when um, my wife had the, our first child, um, we had it. In, she had it in the hospital um, and uh, it was quite a traumatic experience. I, I managed to get through the help of gas. But uh, anyway, one of the things that they did in in this uh, maternity wing was they had a home from home suite. And uh, what they did in this this uh, particular room was they they put Laura Ashley wallpaper on the walls. They'd taken out some of the more intimidating, you know, medical machinery. They put cabinets in there. They even put a telly in, which was quite nice for me. Um, A kettle. You know, you can make your own tea. In other words, they were trying to make it, it more the environment more friendly and relaxing for uh, well, probably not for the man, actually, probably for the, the woman who was having the baby. But you get the point, don't you? I, I, they didn't compromise on the serious business of bringing a new life into the world. 
and we're not to compromise with the gospel. It is a serious business bringing a new spiritual life to birth. However, there are certain things that we can change and do differently to make that process easier, to make it more effective. So I think we need to think about that. I think we could do that an awful lot better than we do. So it was the whole church reaching the whole community. And then I want to say as well, they used the whole range of evangelistic outreach. So it's interesting that Luke uses different words to convey how the gospel was shared. So he uses both words that convey the idea of a public declaration, public preaching. But he also uses words that convey the idea of just everyday conversation and chatter, people naturally sharing their faith. So proclamation, we get this description of how Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. That's the the, the formal, as it were, um, doc, uh, de- declaration, proclamation. Uh, but then, as we read as well, they there were ordinary church members just telling others about Jesus, gossiping the gospel. It was both. I think the mistake sometimes we make in the church is we only have one tool in the toolbox. Um, We need every tool in the toolbox. Um, Often, I think it's because we're very susceptible to trends in the church. Have you noticed that? Particularly in evangelism. So, you know, years ago, the, the trend was to have an evangelistic evening service, a gospel service. And that, that went out of vogue. And the trend became meal based evangelism, you know, an evangelistic meal with a talk. And then that kind of went out of vogue. And people said, no, it's got to be friendship evangelism. And then it became small group evangelism, you know, Alpha or Christianity Explored. And it seems to me that very often, What we do is just we just move from one trend to the other. When in actual fact, what we need is all of those tools all of the time. So, you know, open air preaching has gone out of vogue, hasn't it? Or tract work. But we need to be doing open air preaching because there's so many people that we will never reach unless we go out into the streets. We need all these tools. So we need confrontational evangelism. We go out on the streets or on the doors, but we also need relational evangelism. And you find that throughout the book of Acts, don't you? You find Paul sitting beside a river and just talking to some women. And there was a woman called Lydia. And uh, there it was in Philippi, wasn't it? And and just says the Lord opened Lydia's heart. And it's just such a lovely picture, isn't it, of a of of a conversation that God uses and. And that woman is converted. But then you also see Paul in the Areopagus in Athens, in that very formal setting, proclaiming the gospel and debating with the, you know, the the philosophers. And so you get both. We've got to have every tool in the toolbox. I think the great mistake is to only use one method. Remember, Paul said that I might by all means save some. So it was a whole range of evangelistic tools that the 
the church at Antioch used. And I would encourage us to, to do the same. Let's think about our evangelism strategy. Uh, let's think about the kind of events that we put on. So, yeah, we do need the sort of low key quiz night type event with a, a short, maybe 10 minute epilogue at the end. But we also need the kind of meeting where there can be a direct, longer evangelistic preach with a with an appeal at the end. We need we need both. Uh, and actually, they work hand in glove. They're not in competition with one another, are they? So, you know, you have a quiz night, which is easier to get people along to. And and, you know, it's it's lower key. But that's a great way of inviting people to something more. To something like, for example, a, a testimony style evening followed by a preach. Um, I would encourage you to think about that. Um, I would encourage you to have evangelistic Sunday services. Again, I think that has gone out of fashion, but we need to be doing that. I, in my, in my church, we've had, um, um, one Sunday a month, one Sunday evening a month where we have a, a, a really interesting testimony interview. Um, the Christians love it, but it's a great opportunity for them to invite their friends. They know the gospel is going to be preached. They know there won't be any hymn singing or long prayers. Um, and they know it's going to be just the kind of thing that they can bring their non-Christians to, non-Christian friends to. We need to be doing that in our churches. Um, it, I don't know if you've ever been in that frustrating situation where you've invited a non-Christian to church and they finally come. And that's the one Sunday that the pastor is preaching on Leviticus, you know, or, or some complicated part of Revelation or Daniel. And, and your heart sinks and you think, oh, if only they'd been there the previous week or another week. I think we need to help our church churches and help individual Christians in their evangelism by putting on Services that they know are going to be evangelistic, that they can invite their friends to and, and really make that a target. Um, I, I think every church should have at least one service a month that is like that, that is evangelistic. If you think about it, if you have a morning and evening service and you give one Sunday um, a month, what, what is that? It's a tiny percentage, isn't it, of your services? Ten percent? Is it in a year of your services would be given over to evangelism? I think we can do more than that. But that's that should be a minimum, shouldn't it? I wonder if that's happening in our churches. So we need to think through how we can use all these different methods and approaches in evangelism. And then we need to think about how we join them together in a strategy. And then finally, I want to say that this church in Antioch is a model to us because it was evangelism that was led from the front. The whole leadership, it seems to me, was committed to mission. And you couldn't get two more committed evangelists than Paul and Barnabas, could you? And so much so that actually the church says, look, we're going to send you out as, as, as church planting evangelists. And, and they made a great sacrifice, didn't they? In giving away their, their two uh, leaders to, to, to mission. So Paul and Barnabas were, were evangelistic leaders. We need leaders in the church that have an evangelistic heart and an evangelistic vision. And again, sadly, so often 
that isn't the case. Um, I remember being in one church where the pastor went on a skiing holiday halfway through the church mission. The church will remain nameless. But, you know, I couldn't believe it. This was the leader and he left the church halfway through the, the mission. And you just knew that, that he didn't have the vision and the heart for outreach. We need leaders like Paul and Barnabas who are evangelistically minded. You know, look at some of the great ministries in churches and you'll see that often they were led by men who had a great passion for the lost. Think of Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. You'd say of him, wouldn't you, that he was as much an evangelist as he was a, a Bible teacher. And that church grew. They had thousands flocking in every week. You know, even Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was regarded as as a, a great Bible teacher by many. You know, his wife said that people will never understand my husband until they understand that first and foremost, he was an evangelist. Isn't that interesting? We need leaders who have an evangelistic passion and heart and who will lead the church from the front, who will set the example themselves and will motivate the membership. Now, I appreciate we may not all be in those kinds of churches and it's very difficult. Um, and maybe sometimes you've got to perhaps prompt your pastor tactfully and sensitively. And maybe you've got to suggest that, that, that you have a mission, perhaps. And incidentally, we haven't talked about missions in churches, but that's something I would highly recommend. We need to be doing regular evangelistic services. But but then now and again, we need to be having concentrated times of outreach where the whole week or weekend is given over to, uh, you know, a, a, a concentrated effort to reach non-Christians. Why not suggest that to your pastor that you have a mission? Suggest an evangelist that you know and you trust to come and come and do that. Um, and listen, if, if you're not in a position where you feel that your current leadership is as evangelistic as it could be. Then when the opportunity comes round, maybe when the, a new elder is going to be appointed, make sure that that elder is someone who has this evangelistic heart. And when it comes, you know to an interregnum and you're looking for a new pastor, make sure that's the top of the list of priorities for your church. And I would say as well, you know, as churches, we need to be appointing evangelists to staff. Um, very, very few churches have a full time evangelist on their staff. Um, it's interesting. I mentioned Ephesians four that talks about those um, gifts that were given to the church, doesn't it? You know, the prophet, the uh, the pastor. But did you notice that in that list there is the evangelist? And I hate to say this, I don't want to tread on any toes. I am now a pastor myself, but the evangelist comes before the pastor in that list in Ephesians 4. And yet very often in our churches, you know, appointing an evangelist is the very last thing that we're thinking of. We, we, you know, we'll appoint a pastor, maybe an assistant pastor. We might appoint a youth worker and maybe a church administrator. And then if we've got any money left over, maybe then we'll think about appointing an evangelist. I think that's a big mistake. I, I think it should be much higher up the list of our priorities. 
So maybe that's something we think we could think about, especially for a, a bigger church. Why not encourage your leadership or if you're on the leadership, why not think about appointing a full time evangelist who can lead the church out in this um, priority of the mission? So there we are at the Antioch Church. What a what a fantastic example they are to us of an evangelistic church. A church where the whole membership was involved in evangelism. The whole church, not just a, a few keenies, not just a, it wasn't just left to a few enthusiasts. The whole membership was involved. A, a church where the whole community was being reached. Not just people who were like us, but everybody. And then a church where the whole range of evangelistic tools was being used. Preaching, yes, but personal evangelism as well. And then a church where the whole leadership was committed to evangelism, had a vision for evangelism and led the church in that way. Um, and I think if we were more like the church in Antioch, we would be growing churches. We would see the impact and the effect that it would have um, so there we are. A few thoughts on the church at Antioch. Thank you, Paul. Now we can start straight away, folks, because on Saturday at eight o'clock, just to remind you, the conversion story of a Muslim young lady. And um, why not get praying for that neighbor or that friend or relative now to invite them for Saturday evening and just see what God might do. A little bit of faith and a big God. See what he might do. We have questions, so we're going now over to Phyllis for those questions. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And obviously you're, you're very zealous for this, but there is a question here. Why do you think evangelistic zeal is so low? That's a very good question. Um, I, I think for lots of reasons. I think sometimes it... It's because we're not doing evangelism that we don't have an evangelistic zeal. It's very interesting in my own Christian life. I know that often it's when I've been I've been encouraged to to get out there and witness that I actually then begin to feel a passion to do it. And sometimes it's like that in the Christian life, isn't it? It's only as you do it that 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 passion grows within you. Um, and so I think that's maybe part of the problem. I, I also think if I'm if I'm really honest that um, when we don't see it in our leaders, when we, we don't have it modelled to us, when there isn't that example set to us, um, you know, we, we, we become, well, we follow, we follow the example of, of, of those in leadership who don't have a, a passion for evangelism either. Do you know what I mean? It's, um, often it's caught rather than taught. Uh, and so, again, you know, we need mentors who are going to who are going to encourage and inspire us i also if i'm this may be more controversial so forgive me but i also do think that there is there are some theological reasons as to why we are lacking in evangelistic zeal and i do think that uh, that a, a, an emphasis on a the sovereignty of god that absolves us of personal responsibility such an emphasis upon divine determinism that we almost play little or no part in 
in the work of evangelism. I think that's had a bad effect on us too. And I think we need to get back to an understanding that, yes, it is God's work to save the lost. We cannot save anyone, but he uses us to do that, that we cooperate, we work with God and that we can't just sit back and, uh, you know, wait for God to sovereignly intervene and do it himself. And, you know, it's this idea of God's just going to come in and, and zap us all with revival. No, God, God calls us to be his mouthpiece. You know, as, as Paul says, we're called to be ambassadors. Uh, and as he says in, 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 in Romans 10, you know, how shall they hear unless someone tells them? And so there's a challenge, a responsibility that we have as believers. And we need to be challenged with that responsibility. Again, I think sometimes, you know, we've, we've hesitated to say that. Um, we have a duty to reach the lost uh, and we need to take that duty seriously. I think oh, it's a mixture of all of those things, Phyllis. Yeah. Um, look, looking back, how would this talk have been different if you had given it 30 years ago when you were very young? Um, I, I'm not sure it would have been, except that, uh, you know, I've, I've had a bit more experience over the years and, and maybe a, a lot of what I've said tonight is born out of, you know, 20 years as an itinerant evangelist, observing what's going on in the church and seeing some of the weaknesses um, that we've sadly fallen into. Um, I mean, I guess the one thing that might have changed is, I might have been talking about some different methods um, some things that we did 30, 40 years ago um, perhaps aren't quite as relevant. We used to run tent missions all the time. Um, and often those missions were a little bit more like church services where we sang hymns and, you know, um, it was a bit more like a Sunday service. That would change, I think, in a in a post-Christian, very secular society. I wouldn't recommend Maybe that style of service. Um, but I'd, I'd recommend gospel preaching. That hasn't changed. And um, we just need to think of a new context for it, which is why I think these testimony style evenings where you, you don't have singing. You have a half an hour interview with a really interesting, gripping testimony followed by a preach. That's probably the way we would do it now rather than, you know, singing hymns and and, and that kind of thing. OK. And um, if you've raised the lack of evangelism happening in your church with your leaders and there's no real progress, do you suggest that you move on from that church? Wow, that's a really tough one. I, I think I, I, to be honest with you, one of the problems I think we have in the evangelical world is this church merry-go-round. And I'm not in favour of that. Um, you know, people moving from church to church. When they don't like something in their particular church, they, you know, they take the bat home and leave and find another. I'm not in favour of that. So I think you need to stick in there as long as you possibly can. I think you need to pray for the leaders if, if you don't think they're doing it right. I think you need to make suggestions to them. Um, I think, you know, you could encourage them to look at other churches and see what they're doing. Um, and then just get on with it yourself. You know, I, if, if they're not going to come out and do evangelism, well, there's nothing to stop you doing it. You can go out in the doors and maybe you can get two or three to go with you. And, and perhaps, you know, that it will spread in that way. 
um, it is hard to change things from the sidelines. I, I know that. Um, but I, I think leaving your church and moving on really is a last resort. That would be my view. Okay, there's a couple of questions that are very similar. Is how can we develop an evangelistic heart in our young people? And then do you have any advice for people who are younger and don't have much influence within the church in doing evangelism? Um, I I think um, my experience was when I was younger, (laughs) many years ago, that I, I got involved with a group who were already doing this. And like I said earlier on, it was caught rather than taught. Um, and I think that often is the way with young people. Uh, and so I think you, you, there needs to be a little group um, that that is doing this that you can then introduce more young people to. Um, so and it may it may just start with. You and one other young person or you and two other young people, you might take them out on the streets and do some tracting or, or some questionnaire work. Um, obviously, within the context of the church youth work, you need to think about a strategy of evangelism there. You know, is, is, is your youth work just for Christians? If it is, then you need to introduce evangelistic, evangelistic meetings and events into the youth programme. And you need to teach your youth about evangelism. So in a sense, the same principle applies as it does to the rest of the church. Um, and, and I think if you're a young person and you can't, it's hard for you to influence the church. I would say get on with, get on with it yourself. Um, and I would highly recommend um, doing summer missions. I, something that helped me immensely as a young Christian was going on, on beach missions in the summer. Um, and, and getting trained and helped there and mentored there. And it may be only for a week, but actually the things that I learned there on those summer missions, I took back into my church and where I was able, you know, you filtered those things in. And that can be a way of, of getting trained and helped too. And there are some inter-church groups that are very evangelistic um, and you might get involved with them, not instead of your church, uh, but alongside your church. Um, so I think there are things that young people can do. Thank you. Um, I was hearing at the weekend of a church that's doing an online Zoom for Christianity Explored and was really happy that all the tables had been taken, whatever that meant. But what ways of being evangelistic have you found has worked during lockdown? Wow. Yeah. Well, it, I, I don't claim to be an expert on this. I, I think it is tricky. Um we in our church put our services on um, YouTube. We have our own YouTube channel, as many do. And we've tried to put some short evangelistic talks on there. Um, so they might last for 10 minutes. And um, we've put talks like that on there. Um, I, I, I've especially during lockdown tried to make my preaching as evangelistic as possible. So although I am teaching believers um, there's always plenty of content in there for, for non-Christians. Uh, and sometimes I, I just take a, I've tried to take subjects that I think if you were just looking through YouTube, you might, you know, you might latch on to like, you know, loneliness. I'm going to talk on loneliness. Um, fear, overcoming fear. I'm going to talk on overcoming fear. This kind of thing. Things that maybe people might, might tune into. Um, 
Uh, it's a great opportunity. I mean, they, I think people, uh, our experiences that we're, we're certainly known of people who are, are watching who have never been to our church uh, and they're, they're getting in touch with us. So, yeah, that's what we've done. Yeah, I think we've all been aware of other people looking into our website, etc. Yeah. And yeah. Paul, you say to appoint evangelism, evangelists, but where are they? How do we find or train them? Yeah, well, I would, it, it, to be honest, the best trainers of evangelists are evangelists. So, you know, if you want to uh, find a budding evangelist, why not ask an established evangelist if they know of any? Uh, and I suspect they may well know of some. Um, so, yeah, I would talk to a Roger Carswell and say, Roger, do you know of any bud- young budding evangelists um, or maybe not so young uh, evangelists? Um that would be a first port of call, I think. Um, but it may be somebody within our own congregation. You know, we often miss those people, don't we? But, you know, perhaps we're all aware of people in our congregation who are who just seem to be more motivated and involved in evangelism themselves and just getting on with it and doing it. And, and maybe we need to say to some of those people, hey, you know, we, we can a gift for this. Um can we can we link you up with a more experienced evangelist and help you to get training? Um, and I know that the Association of Evangelists is running a training course. Um, and uh, so you might link them into that. Um, they run training days where people can go along and, and, and work alongside experienced evangelists and get training that way. Um, as I said earlier on, I, I really think you learn most on the job rather than in the classroom. Um, uh, yeah, there are some good online courses, but th- there's no substitute for getting out there and doing it, you know, at the coalface. Um, I think that's where you learn the most. So I think take the opportunity to do that. Send them on a mission. See yeah. if they can go with with an evangelist. Get them on beach missions or, or some other uh, uh, mission group that they can go and, and, and work with. Yeah. That would be some ideas. Thanks, Paul. Apologies for my phone then. Um, how do we make our church services more user-friendly to the unconverted or the newly converted? And maybe not talking about your monthly uh, evangelistic service, but a general service, yeah. make it more user-friendly. Yeah, well, I think that there's a challenge here to us pastors, to us regular preachers. Um, you know, how, how much do we assume in, in our preaching? Do we assume that people have Bible knowledge? I try never to assume anything. So, you know, if I'm going to refer to an Old Testament character, for example, I I want to explain who they are and give, you know, as much detail as I can in a short space of time so that people know what you're talking about. Um, Avoid jargon. You know, it's amazing how we preachers slip into it. Um, You know, who cares whether people know that we've, you know, swallowed a, a Bible encyclopedia or not. It, it, actually, the, the challenge is to make difficult truths simple, isn't it? And, and all preachers need to be doing that. And I would say always when you preach, have the unconverted in mind. Um, there may be no unconverted in your congregation, but when you prepare, assume there will be. Assume there will be. And um, I, I think that's important. And then I think there's lots of little things, aren't there? Like... Um, you know, y- using visuals um, 
like PowerPoints or, or short video clips. I think maybe not sticking um, a, a, a hymn book and a Bible in someone's hand when they first walk into church <laughs> can be a bit daunting. And I think the other thing that often happens in churches, um, especially in young uh, churches for younger people, is, is this idea that we uh, stand up and sing for 40 minutes. What, what does that do for the non-Christian? They don't know the songs. Uh, they've just got to stand there like lemons for 40 minutes, uh, waiting for the, you know, to sit down and, and listen to the talk. I, I know that's the trend, but I think it, it's very, very much, well, it's church design for Christians, isn't it? Yeah. And I think we've got to think through that. And I often, you know, when I've been to meetings like that, the other people I think of is, is the older people, you know, who've got to stand up <laughs> for, for 20 minutes. You know, and if they don't stand up, they can't see the screen and read the words. So, you know, we I, little things like that, I think we've got to think about. Yeah. And, and then being friendly. I mean, there's no substitute for that, is there? No, so, that, right. you know, where people are welcomed when they arrive um, and people, you know, make sure no one's sat on their own. And then afterwards, people go up and talk to them. We serve refreshments before our service and after. So we have coffee and cakes before for half an hour before our service. So people can come in and just chat and feel relaxed. And then we serve coffee and refreshments afterwards as well. Um, I think those informal times are key. How often should an evangelistic sermon be preached from the pulpit, taking away your monthly um, specific service? Do you think it should be more regular? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I do you know what I think has happened here with this. I think um, because we've we kind of we've kind of put up the white flag, as it were, of bringing non-Christians to church on a Sunday. And so we've said, oh, well, you know, we're, we're only going to be preaching to the, the saved anyway. So what's the point in being evangelistic? Uh, and then, of course, it becomes a vicious circle. Because who is going to invite their non-Christian friend to a service that they know is, isn't going to be evangelistic and isn't going to relate to them? And when a non-Christian does come and they find it's way over their heads and makes no sense, are they going to come back? And then it becomes a kind of vicious circle, doesn't it? So we don't have any non-Christians at our services, so we're not going to preach evangelistically. We don't preach evangelistically, so we're not going to get any non-Christians. I think we've got, like I said earlier on, I think we've got to assume even if there aren't non-Christians there, assume there will be and make sure that our, uh, our sermons can be understood by somebody who has no background and make sure that at least there's some gospel challenge within every message. And, and one of the things that we need to do, I think, is we need to ch- we need to choose subject matter that lends itself to that. So, you know, preaching for, I mean, I know Lloyd-Jones did this. You know, he preached for 10 years on Romans or whatever it was. Um, But personally, I think we should be doing shorter series where, yeah, we might go through a book or part of a book. um, But it's not so long and involved. You know, it's not 10 years on Ezekiel. That's going to be really, really hard for a non-Christian to ever, ever get into. Um, I think we need to choose carefully our, our, our sermon topics. We need variety, obviously. We need to preach the whole word of God. But let's do a series on, you know, encounters with Jesus. 
You can do a great, I mean, I've often done it. I've done it more than once. Great evangelistic talks, just looking at people who met with Jesus and their lives were transformed. Um, and uh, so we need to think about the kind of, and you can teach believers through that kind of series, but it's very, very accessible to the non-Christian. Um, how would you encourage a new and struggling church plant? Yeah, well, I, as I said earlier on, I believe in church plants. Um, I, I believe we need to be planting churches because there are huge areas of our cities that have no evangelical witness. And it's tough planting a church. I think every church plant struggles, actually, unless it's a transplant where, you know, you take 100 Christians from here and transplant them. And then it's, you know, it's a ready made church and it's easy. I think starting from scratch is tough. And I, we found it really tough. We struggled. You know, we're, we're, we're about 50 now, which isn't earth shattering, is it? But it's taken us six years to get there. Um, and um, yeah, it's hard to keep going. I, I think um, bigger churches need to be encouraging towards church plants. That might even mean giving them financial assistance. It might mean encouraging some to join them, especially if you've got people that live in there near that church plant. You know, why are they traveling from that area to your church? Why not encourage those people to link into that church plant? Um, and I think church, the leaders of church plants do need encouragement because it is hard going, it re especially in the early days, really hard going. So I think, you know, pray for them and let them know that you're praying for them. Put that church plan on, on, you know, into your prayer meetings regularly and, and let them know that you're praying for them regularly. Um, and, 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 you know, actually, you might even if you're a big church, why not even say, look, we'd like to fund a evangelist to work alongside you or share an evangelist with you uh, or a children's worker or a youth worker. That would be a huge encouragement to a. Uh, Mm. A, a church plan. We're, we're just about to, hopefully, God willing, appoint a a youth worker, children's and youth worker. But we've only, only we, we, if we do that, we'll only be able to do it because we're partnering with another organisation that is part funding this particular worker. Mm. Uh, and and why can't churches that have got more resources that are a bit bigger partner with a church plan and maybe do something like that? You know. Say we'll have an evangelist. They can work two days a week with you, work two days a week with us. But that would be a massive encouragement to uh -huh. a, a new church plan. Well, it's rarely mentioned that the reality of an eternal torment under the wrath of God, that Christians don't see the urgency of it. Sorry, can you? Yeah, sorry, I'm sorry. Do you think that because... That hell is rarely mentioned, mm. that the reality of internal torment under the wrath of God, Christians don't see the urgency of it. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's another theological reason for a lack of vision. As I was saying earlier on, an overemphasis on the sovereignty of God, I think is a problem. But yeah, I, absolutely, I do. It, it, it's so interesting when you look at the preaching. I've, I'm just reading a, a biography of, uh, of Wesley. John Wesley, of course, great preacher of the um, 18th century revival. And you, you look at some of his preaching. They preached hell. They preached judgment. And often people became Christians 
under a conviction of, uh, you know, a fear of judgment. Um, and uh, there was, you know, real, a real seriousness about eternity. And I do think we've lost that. Yeah, it's a really, really helpful and good point. And uh, th- I mean, there are ways of preaching about hell, aren't there? I'm not, you know, we don't, we don't revel in it. It's not rubbing our hands with glee and, you know, and we, if we're going to preach hell, we, we need to do almost with tears in our eyes, don't we? Mm. You know, it, it, so we, we can't do it in a cold and detached way, but in a passionate and a loving and a compassionate way, we need to plead with people because yes, there is a lost eternity. And I think because we're not hearing that preaching in our churches, sure, I think that affects our passion and motivation and urgency. Okay, I mean, just this is the last question, I think. Um, it's a, a, bit, a little bit personal to you. Do you feel pastoral ministry limits you as an evangelist? Personally, no, I don't. I mean, I do think you have to make sure that um, you don't spend all your time, um, you know, just dealing pastorally with believers i think you like i said earlier on i think the church leaders should be setting the example taking the lead in evangelism um uh, but i've never found that a problem to be honest and and actually what i find is the believers in the church are really encouraged when they see new people coming in nothing will lift the spirits of a church than someone getting converted Mm. I'm sure we've all seen that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it just there's a buzz about the whole church when somebody gets saved mm. and people hear about it, and and uh, and so I don't think there needs to be that that you know conflict, as it were. Yeah, we need to look after believers, definitely, but we we need to be doing we need to be setting the example in in evangelism too. Um, yeah. Thanks, Paul. Uh, great talk. Very helpful and challenging. Thank you very much. Thank Over to Vinny. Great. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, Phyllis, for those lovely questions. Now, we now break off into smaller groups to quickly say who we are and then get straight into prayer. And then a little later on, if you're a bit of a late night and you want to stay, um, there's a chance to chat for whoever will. Uh, and we usually wrap up round about 10 o'clock-ish. God bless you. We're going to those small groups now.